Hello, and welcome to another bonus podcast. My name is Crystal Taves. I'm the pastor of women at Northview Community Church. The podcast that you're about to hear was recorded on our Wednesday morning Bible studies. Uh, we did a series of remarkable lives, learning from Christians from, the, from history. We hope you will enjoy it. Okay, y'all might not be glad in the end that I love Spurgeon so much and know so much because it might be a lot because I actually get to speak on Spurgeon for both halves of the morning. I didn't really feel like squishing him into one hour, so Kendra said I could take two, so y'all are just so lucky. Um, I fell in love with Spurgeon, I think, through my father-in-law. He was a Presbyterian pastor um, in Ontario for years and then in eastern Canada, and whenever we would go visit him... um, Our family were missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators, and we were in Cameroon for several years. And when we come home on furlough, we would spend part of the time with my in-laws. And his study, my father-in-law's study, was full of Spurgeon books. He had the entire um, collection. There's a big, this collection here. It's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. There's 62 volumes, I think, of it, of all of Spurgeon's printed sermons lined in a study, lots of Spurgeon books. And so we were there on furlough and I wanted something to read and I would pick out one of those Spurgeon volumes and read a Spurgeon sermon. And I just grew to love Charles Spurgeon. Um, And I've read um, a lot of him since then. My father-in-law died about three years ago. He had MS, he suffered for about 20 years. And then after he died, my mother-in-law called and said, would you like all of Spurgeon? And I said, yes, what an inheritance. So all those volumes are now in my house, along with all of his Spurgeon books, and I've bought Spurgeon on top of it. Um, what's really been fun in preparing for today is I was so familiar with his teaching and preaching and writing, but not so much with his life. And so now I've studied a lot of his life history, and now when I think of what he's teaching, it means so much more because I realize more of the struggles and the joys and just the ins and outs of his life. Um, A lot of what I'm teaching comes from these two books. It's in two volumes. It's called The Autobiography of Spurgeon. Um, It's not actually his autobiography. He never wrote one. He had the idea to, so from time to time, he would write snippets of what could be in an autobiography and he would hand it to his wife and he would say, hey, this can go in my autobiography one day. And so after he died, she pulled together those snippets along with um, a lot of his journal entries and letters. Um, So that's where a lot of my information comes from. And then there's a little book here. And this author took um, Spurgeon biographical information just from the sermons that he wrote. Like you can, in all those sermons, you can gather a lot of what happened in his life because he tells stories. And so... um, We're going to hear a lot from Spurgeon himself because I have in these books things that he actually said. And so we'll get to have his words even though it's in my voice. So um, I have to say that for me personally, um, in my walk as a Christian, I think of the different means of grace that, um, that God has allowed me to take advantage of to know more. Reading scripture is huge for me, obviously prayer. Scripture memory has been huge in my Christian growth, and I would also have to add Spurgeon then to it. Spurgeon, along with some other really great old writers, um, 
have really helped encourage me along the way. And so I'm hoping that I can pass that on to you and then um, it can be a source of encouragement for you too. Okay, so the way it's gonna go this morning is um, I'll share for about an hour um, and then we'll take a break at about um, 10.15. If I don't see it's 10.15, y'all can let me know. I'm gonna try to keep an eye on the clock. So for the first part, we're going to just look at kind of his life and, and all the amazing things he did. And then when we come back after break, I'm going to focus more on some of his struggles. And we'll have some discussion times in there too. And some few pictures and maybe part of a video and so on. Anyway, we should get started. If I just hit the space, will it wake it up? Yeah. Okay. So Charles Spurgeon, Faithful in Preaching. When I was working on this, Kendra sent an email and she says, you need to come up with one word uh, that describes your person. So faithful in something. So I'm like, I don't know, faithful in everything? Can I just say everything for my one word? (laughs) I had to pick a word. So I said preaching, but um, he wasn't a sinless man, right? Nobody is, but I, I think he was pretty much faithful. Faithful in everything he put his hand to. Okay, that has nothing to do with Spurgeon. I just want you to see my family since you're not as familiar with me. Uh, so this was taken this past Mother's Day, a few days ago, uh, as a sort of a gift for me. Um, it's hard to get everybody together for a picture, but my big boys, they were home for Sunday lunch, and so we called to our neighbor who was mowing his lawn and said, could you come take our picture in the backyard? So the big boys on the end, they're, um, they go to Trinity Western. That's Josiah and Nate. And then uh, Drew in the white shirt and Annie, they're in grade five and seven. I homeschool them. And that's my husband, Sean. And as I mentioned, we're missionaries with Wycliffe Bible Translators. <clears throat> Sean um, teaches at KenIL. It's Wycliffe's um, Linguistic Training Institute in Langley. And I'm gonna be teaching there in the fall too. So that's us. Okay, back to Spurgeon. So Charles Spurgeon was born in 1834, June 19th in Essex, England. And he was the first of 17 children um, to be born. Only eight of those children survived infancy. When he was 16 months old, he was sent to live with his grandparents in Stanbourne, England. And I haven't, I haven't been able to find out exactly why he was sent. All I can think is that if there were 17 children to come, then maybe they, were, they just needed some place for him to go. I don't know. But it turned out to be a wonderful place for him to go. His father was a pastor and his grandfather was a pastor. Um, and his grandfather had a room in the top of the house that was really dark. Um, It talks about some light excluding tax that was going on in England at the time. I think maybe because of a pending war or a war. And so they would board up the windows and you would have to pay a tax for every room that had light coming into it. And so this was a darkened room, but it was full of Puritan books. And this is where Charles learned to read um, and learned to love um, great theological writers. So he lived there until he was 10, and he was exposed to these books. He writes, um, some of these were enormous folios, such as a boy could hardly lift. Like he was such a little boy learning to read, he could hardly lift them, but he read them. He writes, out of that darkened room, I fetched those old authors when I was yet a youth, and never was I happier than when they're in their company. So one of his very favorite lifelong books, I think if you ask him in heaven what his favorite books is, he'll say Pilgrim's Progress. When he was seven, He read Pilgrim's Progress. Um, John Bunyan wrote this in 1678. So already he was an old author. He would have been two years old already, 200 years old um, for Spurgeon to be reading it. 
Um, John Bunyan wrote this from prison. You might be familiar with the story. It's sort of a Christian allegory. It, it focuses on a, a man named Christian. He's a pilgrim on his way to the celestial city and he faces like the giant despair and he goes through the slew of despond and he is in Doubting Castle. And it's a great um, picture of the Christian walk. And this is one version that we have at home. It's called The Dangerous Journey and there are lots of great pictures. And like I could maybe imagine one of my six-year-olds being able to read this, right? But this isn't the version that Charles read at six. He read this version. I'll just pass it around and y'all can see if you think you're a six-year-old kid or grandkid, what they would do with this. Um, but it's said that he read this a hundred times throughout his life. Um, so he died at 58, so I'm thinking like maybe twice a year he would just reread this book that influenced him a lot. Okay, he returned home um, to live with his family again when he was about 10. And the next five years, from ages 10 to 15, he describes as years of tremendous spiritual suffering. Um, he actually talks about them as horrors, years filled with horrors. Um, for he was so convicted with sin, he was intellectually aware of the gospel and of the holiness of God, but he had no idea um, how to get rid of the burden of sin. In the Pilgrim's Progress, there's this image of Christian, the pilgrim, and for the first part of the book, he's burdened with this huge back, like this lump on his back, and it's just full of sin, and he's like trying to get rid of it. And this is, this is Charles for, from age 10 to 15, burdened with a sin. Um, he writes, I was condemned, undone, destroyed, lost, hopeless, helpless. I thought hell was before me. I prayed but found no peace. Um, he describes it further. And keep in mind, this is from ages 10 to 15. So like picture your 10-year-old, 11, 12, 13, 14. A lot of kids, I think this is part of what makes him remarkable, was this remarkable period in his young life, that he was so burdened by his sin. He said, um, I saw that, the very, that my very thoughts were enough to damn me, that my words would sink me lower than the lowest hell. And as for my acts of sin, they now began, began to be a stench in my nostrils so that I could not bear them. I thought I had rather been a frog or a toad than have been made a man. I reckoned that the most defiled creature, the most loathsome and contemptible, was a better thing than myself, for I had so grossly and grievously sinned against Almighty God. Now, this is a kid who came from a very um, godly home. Um, it says that he was actually restrained from many of the outward forms of sin that right? That, like you can imagine if someone felt weighed down from sin, maybe it was from outward sin, but that wasn't the fact. He, he describes himself that, that he was a respectable lad. He could have boasted um, because he didn't indulge in, what did he say, <clears throat> lying and um, untruthfulness, swearing, Sabbath breaking. He didn't do those things, and yet he knew that God was holy and that um, God's law just condemned him. He wrote, I feared lest the very sky should fall upon me and crush my guilty soul. God's law had laid hold upon me and was showing me my sins. If I slept at night, I dreamed of the bottomless pit. When I woke, I seemed to feel the misery I had dreamed. Up to God's house I went. My song was but a sigh. To my chamber I retired, and there, with tears and groans, I offered up my prayer without hope, without a refuge, for God's law was flogging me. So for five years, he was totally miserable like this. And he kept going from church to church, trying to find an answer. What do I do um, how can I get rid of my sin? And then wonderfully, and when he was 15 years old, on a January night, 
it was snowing, and he, he was going to church because that's what he um, always did. It says, while under conviction of soul, I resolved that I would attend all the places of worship in town where I lived in order that I might find out the way of salvation. He said, some people would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But I didn't know what it was to believe on Christ. How could I get my sins forgiven? Nobody told me. I desired to hear how a poor sinner under a sense of sin might find peace with God. And he just was searching. So anyway, it's snowing. He can't go any further to the church he was intending to. So he stops in at a little Methodist chapel. Um, Turns out the preacher couldn't even get there that night. And so he... um, He writes, he says, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one one Sunday morning. Um, He says, the preacher didn't come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker or tailor or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. Now it's well the preacher should be instructed, but this man was really unlearned. He actually writes stupid. (laughs) I didn't feel like saying that, but I just did. (laughs) He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. And the text was, this is from Isaiah 45, 22, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. He didn't even pronounce the words rightly, but that didn't matter. There was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. He talks about how the preacher went on for about 10 minutes just really repeating himself a lot because he really didn't have anything to say else. And then it says, and then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He fixed his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart, and he said, young man, you look very miserable. Well, I did, but I hadn't been accustomed to having remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. However, it was a good blow, and it struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death, if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment... You will be saved. Um, Young man, look to Jesus. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and be saved. I saw it once, the way of salvation. And then he writes later, he he writes from, from looking back. He says, I can testify that the joy of that day was indescribable. I could have leaped. I could have danced. There was no expression, however fanatical, which would have been kept out of keeping with the joy of my spirit at that hour. Many days of Christian experience have passed since then, but there has never been one that has been so full of exhilaration, the sparkling delight that 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 first day had. I thought I would have sprung from my seat on which I sat and called out, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven, a monument of grace, a sinner saved by blood. My spirit saw its chains broken to pieces. I felt that I was an emancipated soul, an heir of heaven, a forgiven one, accepted in Christ, plucked out of the miry clay, out of the horrible pit with my feet um, set upon a rock. And my goings established. I thought I could dance all the way home. Um, Spurgeon says um, that looking back over his whole life, he's, he's going to go through lots of trials and hard things. But he says nothing compares to the horrors of those five years. And he wouldn't go back to them for anything. Um, all the suffering he experiences later, they just don't compare with the horrors, and yet those five years of suffering were foundational to his ministry, and they influenced his whole life, just as a lifelong looking to the Savior for salvation, and they totally influenced his preacher, um, his preaching. He was always in his sermons reminding people of one, their tremendous need, um, great problem with sin, and of their great need for a Savior. 
you know, sometimes you can imagine, um, I've been in a class, like in a linguistics class, and I've had a teacher who is maybe a brilliant linguist, and he goes to explain something, and I can't understand him because he's so brilliant, and linguistics is easy for him, or maybe math, right? And you're like, I get that you get it, but I, I just don't understand what you're saying. But if someone is a teacher and they've struggled themselves to learn the concept, when they come to teach it, they can teach it at a level that you can understand. And I think that's part of what made Spurgeon such a tremendous preacher was he knew it was grounded from those five years what it was like to want to be saved, to not know the way of salvation, and to have it so clearly ingrained. And so it made him the best of teachers, I think, um, in the end. Basically, what happened to him, he says, was in those years before, there was a law and grace was confounded, um, mixed up where it shouldn't have been. In home and in all these places he went, he said, I'd heard sort of a mixed sort of law of gospel, a mingle-mangle mixture of law and gospel, muddling up of Moses and Christ, something of do and something of believe, and therefore, I was a long time in that state of bondage. Um, And so you get this really solid gospel preaching um, all over the place in his sermons. And I just pulled out one example that I'll read to you. Um, So he writes, the substance of the gospel lies in that word substitution, Christ standing in the stead of man. If I understand the gospel, it is this. This is so classic Spurgeon, right? This, this, this is retold over and over and over in fresh ways in so many sermons. If I understand the gospel, it's this. I deserve to be lost forever. The only reason why I should not be damned is that Christ was punished in my stead, and there is no need to execute a sentence twice for sin. On the other hand, I know that I cannot enter heaven unless I have a perfect righteousness. I'm absolutely certain I shall never have one of my own, for I find I sin every day, But then Christ had a perfect righteousness, and he has said, There, poor sinner, take my garment and put it on you. You shall stand before God as if you were Christ, and I will stand before God as if I had been the sinner. I will suffer in the sinner's stead, and you shall be rewarded for works which you did not do, but which I did for you. Then Spurgeon writes, I find it very convenient every day to come to Christ as a sinner as I came at first. The devil says, You are no saint. Well, if I'm not, I am a sinner. And Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sink or swim, I go to Christ. Other other hope, I have none. So that was his lifelong foundation. Um, And so there was great fruit that came from those five horrible years, years of horror as he describes him. He writes a letter to his mother one month after um, he became a believer. And in it, he writes, Oh, how I wish I could do something for Christ. And at that point, he begins distributing tracts, just little pamphlets to pass out to people because it was something he could do. Um, Let's see. I was going to read what he said about that to her. Yeah. Oh, how I wish in that letter, dear mother, oh, how I wish I could do something for Christ. Tract distribution is so pleasant and easy that it is nothing, nothing in itself, much less when it is compared with the amazing debt of gratitude I owe. Um, but he writes, if I, if I hadn't actually, if I, I might have done nothing for Christ if I hadn't been encouraged by finding myself able to do so little. So he just did the first thing that came. That was track distribution. And then he began teaching Sunday school um, to boys. That was the, the next little thing he did. Um, four months after he 
um, became a believer, he got baptized. Now, this was a pretty big deal for him because this wasn't the tradition that he was raised in. His, he, his family were, um, his father as a pastor and his grandfather, they were in a church that did infant baptism. But in reading scripture, Charles was convinced that he needed to be baptized as a believing adult. And so four months after he was saved, he got baptized. Um, it says I have a slide here. Let's see which one that is. Oh, there's a picture of Spurgeon, if you'd like to see. And then he prays. He's writing in his journal three days after he's baptized. A big, long prayer. But this is what, one thing he prays, two things. He says, Lord, make me an instrument of good in thy hands. Then he says, save me from pride and sloth, my two great enemies. And then three days later, two days later, he writes, help me live for your glory and be spent for your service. So I want you to keep this in mind. These are the prayers of young Charles Spurgeon. He's 15 years old. And then when we finish up today, we're going to consider how did God answer these prayers and did he? Okay. So we know that first he began passing out tracts and then he began teaching Sunday school. And one day his pastor came to him and another man who was teaching Sunday school and said that they needed to go to this little place and the preacher was ill and they needed to go and preach. Well, there was a bit of a mix-up. On the way, Charles thought the other guy was going to be preaching, and the other guy thought Charles was going to be preaching, and neither had preached before. So they get to the place, and it turns out Charles is going to preach a sermon. This is the place. It says the cottage at Tebersham, the first place he preached. There were about two dozen people there. He gets up to preach, and a lady in the crowd calls out, How old are you? <laughs> and he says, I'll tell you when I'm finished. <laughs> So he finishes the sermon, and she says, again, how old are you? And he says, I'm not yet 16. <laughs> so there he is, 15 years old. Well, after that, he actually begins to preach a lot. Um, in 1851, when he is 16, he begins to preach at a place called Water, Water Beach Chapel. When he got there, there were 40 uh, people who attended the chapel, and very quickly, the um, congregation grew to 450 People wanted to come and hear this, this boy wonder preacher, he was called, who delivered the word with power and creativity. Um, while he was there, his, his great passion was that someone would actually become a believer through his ministry. And I want to read to you this, and it just shows his heart that will carry him through his whole life, um, his passion to see sinners saved. So he writes, when I began to preach at the little thatched chapel at Water Breach, my first concern was, would God save any souls through me? Um, some Sundays were over, and I used to go to the deacons and ask, have you heard of anyone finding the Lord under my ministry? Do you know of anyone being brought to Christ through my preaching? My good old friend, the deacon, said, oh, I'm sure somebody must have received the Savior. I'm quite certain so. Oh, I answered, but I want to know. I want to prove it is so. How my heart leaped for joy when I heard the tidings of my first convert. How I did rejoice. One Sunday afternoon when the deacon said to me, God has set his seal on your ministry in this place, sir. Oh, if anyone had said to me, someone has left you 20,000 pounds, I should not have given a snap of my fingers for it compared to the joy which I felt when I was told that God had saved a soul through my ministry. While he was um, preaching at Water Beach, Spurgeon started thinking that maybe he should get some formal theological training. And he was considering studying at Stephanie College. The congregation got wind of the fact that he was maybe going to be leaving them to go study. So they wrote a letter to his father. It says, Dear Sir, 
having heard with deep regret of your intention of placing your son at Stephanie College. Um, I write to say to you, if you are aware of all the circumstances connected with his ministry, I think you would defer. Allow me to say that since his coming, the congregation has very much increased, the aisles and vestry being often full, and many go away for want of room. There's several cases of his being made useful in awakening the careless. And although we've no, only known him about five months, the attachment is as strong as if we'd been acquainted with him many years. And if he were to leave us just now, it would be the occasion of general lamentation, mourning, and woe. <laughs> he says, if you, sir, would just come over and see for yourself, you would find that this account is not exaggerated. But perhaps you would be ready to exclaim, the half was not told me. So Spurgeon let his son know this. And his son um, responds back, which shows... Um, his great humility, I think. Spurgeon writes to his father, The Lord has given me favor with his people, and I'm so young that they look over my many faults. I believe this is one of the facts of the case. The worst is, I'm in a dangerous place. The pinnacle is not so safe as the quiet veil. I know you pray that I may be kept humble, and I know I do too. So that's, that's wise for a 16-year-old, right? To be able to say, oh, this is a this is a dangerous place. Everybody loves me and thinks I'm great, and, and I don't want to fall into pride. Well, he still was going to pursue getting this theological training. So he goes to have a meeting with the president of the school to see if he could be entered, um, be admitted. He enters into the building, and the servant girl answers the door, and she puts Spurgeon in a room to wait for the president to come. And she lets the president know that Spurgeon is coming, I guess, and she says, you wait over here. And she put them in two separate rooms. The, the president thought Spurgeon had stood him up, and Spurgeon thought the president had stood him up, and they both left from the meeting, having never spoken with each other. And so years later, Spurgeon thinks back on the mix-up, and he writes, I was not a little disappointed at the moment, but I have a thousand times since then thanked the Lord for this, thanked the Lord very heartily for this strange providence which forced my steps into another path. So after that mix-up, he never, he never pursued theological training again, and that was it. So he was never ordained or formally trained, but he was really well-prepared indeed. And it was from books that he read, remember? That's what, he, that's what he fed on as a child. I love what his brother says. Um, you know, he had lots of siblings, right? Um, so this is what his brother writes about him. His brother's testimony was that he never did anything else but study. I kept rabbits, chickens, and pigs, this is brothers talking, and a horse. He kept to books. While I was busy here and there, meddling with anything and everything that a boy could touch, he kept to books and could not be kept away from study. But though he had nothing to do with other things, he could have told you all about them because he used to read about everything with a memory as tenacious as a vice and as copious as a barn. And that was Spurgeon's training. Um, he read an average of six books a week for his entire life. And his library was massive. By the time he died, it was over 5,000 volumes. But it wasn't like just a library that had books for show. They say that every book you could pull off the shelf, it was marked, it was earmarked, it was noted, it was digested. And it, like he, he just had a, a clamp of a memory. Um, and it wasn't just theological books he read. He would read books on botany, medicine, nature, just all kinds of things. He would read and just absorb it. And then he could um, make use of this in his sermons. By the time Spurgeon was 20 years old, he had preached over 600 times already. Then in the summer of 1853, when Spurgeon was 19, a member of New Park Street Chapel heard Spurgeon preach, and he went home and told his church about him because they needed a pastor. 
So the deacon of that church invited Spurgeon to come for a six-month probation period. And after just a few weeks, they said, uh, we want you to stay on, forget the probation. Now there at New Park Street was a woman in the congregation. Her name was Susanna Thompson. Um, and she heard Spurgeon preach. So the first morning he spoke at New Park Street, there were lots of empty uh, pews because people didn't know who was coming to speak. And then different ones were saying that afternoon, we need to fill up these pews so that this preacher knows that he's going to have a warm welcome. And so um, they were going around encouraging those who hadn't been to the morning service to come to the, to the evening service. So they come to her house and they say, and little Susie must come too. That's Susanna that I'm talking about. And then this is, Ms. This is Susanna Spurgeon writing um, her memory of it. She writes, I do not think that little Susie particularly cared about being present that night. Her ideas of the dignity and propriety of the ministry were rather shocked and upset by the reports which the morning worshipers had brought back concerning the young man's unconventional outward appearance. However, to please my dear friends, I went with them, and thus was present at the second sermon which my precious husband preached in London. And then she goes on to talk about her impression of him at first. She writes, For if the whole truth be told, I was not at all fascinated by the young orator's eloquence, while his countrified manner and speech excited more regret than reverence. Alas, for my vain and foolish heart, I was not spiritually minded enough to understand his earnest presentation of the gospel and his powerful pleading with sinners. Um, but the long, badly trimmed hair, the blue pocket handkerchief with white, with white spots, that he would wave around. These attracted most of my attention. I fear it awakened some amusement to me. Well, eventually, um, she would talk to him a little bit, and one day she received uh, a copy of Pilgrim's Progress. It's a gift from Spurgeon, and in it, there's a little uh, photocopy of what it, he inscribed. Miss Thompson, with, dearest, with desires for her progress in the blessed pilgrimage from C.H. Spurgeon. Well, eventually, they got married. Um, I think it's pretty... Well, okay. They got married on January 8th, 1856. Um, nine months later, she had twins, Charles and Thomas. But that was the only children they were ever able to have. And in a day of really large families, this was remarkable only to have two kids Nine years later, after not having children, when she was 33 years old, she had a cervical operation to see about helping things, but it was botched, and she then became an invalid. She was, for the rest of her life, um, for like the next 27 years, she hardly ever got to hear him preach because she, she stayed at home. But um, she was really a, she had it all, a ministry on her own, actually. There's a, one of my books up here uh, is just about her, a remarkable woman, too, and she did what she could, um, even from her home, when she couldn't get out and about, she had something called the um, Pastor's Book Fund, and she would gather up books, a lot of them would be her, her, her own husband's books, or books of great theological writers, and she would ship them off to pastors around England who didn't have books, couldn't afford books, because she knew how encouraging they would be, and that was one of her big um, ministries. Anyway, I wanted to read a testimony that she writes Oh, here, you want to see a picture of her? Keeps going to sleep, but I think I can wake it up. Um, there, there's Susanna with her twins. 
she talks about looking back. She's writing about her wedding day. She says, if I had known then how good he was, it means Charles, and how great he would become, I should have been overwhelmed, not so much with the happiness of being his as with the responsibility which such a position would entail. But thank God, throughout all my blessed married life, the perfect love which drew us together never slackened or faltered. And though I can now see how undeserving I was to be the life companion of so eminent a servant of God, I know he did not think this, but he looked upon his wife as God's best earthly gift to him. This, this is actually remarkable to me, um, and I think it might be to you after we go on a little further and see how busy he was and how much he got done, because sadly, sometimes the testimony of these great, great preachers, men of God, is they didn't have a great family. Um, John Wesley, great preacher, he had a terrible um, marriage. Even A.W. Tozer, another preacher I like to read his sermons for, recently I heard that his, um, his wife never really felt very loved. After he died, she writes how she got married again and found out what it was like to actually have someone devoted to her because she always just felt um, left out. But anyway, I think that that's often the case, but it wasn't the case of Charles. Um, and Actually, one of my favorite chapters in this biography is, is called A Son's Recollection. And it's a whole chapter of just his boys' um, memories and um, of his father, of their father. And that's another just remarkable testimony to me of, his, of what his family had to say about him. Okay, so remember how at Water Beach, the congregation grew from 40 to 450 really quickly? Same thing happened at New Park Street Chapel. When he got there, there were 200 members in the church, and the church could seat 1,200, and very quickly, the building, there wasn't enough room for the 1,200. And so um, they realized they needed to build a new church. And so Spurgeon started soliciting funds for this new building. He contributed personally himself 20% of the total cost, so he contributed 5,000 pounds toward the building. And four years after coming to New Park Street, um, the foundation stone was laid for the Metropolitan Tabernacle, so that would be his new church. It's still New Park Street Chapel, but now it just has a new name. Now it's called Metropolitan Street. Metro, well, it's no longer on New Park Street. So this is the outside of it. That's the inside of it. It could seat 5,000, and there was standing room for 1,000 or more. Um, and there were often just tons and tons of people outside trying to hear who couldn't get in. It was open free from debt. And Spurgeon preached there for 34 years, three sermons a week, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Thursday night. No microphone. <laughs> Over 10 million people heard him preach during his years of ministry. There's a picture of the church today. It's still standing, but there are now buildings around it, right? Um, weekly, he would preach to crowds of 6,000 and Sometimes they would rent out other facilities because they wanted more people to get to here. For example, in October 1857, he preached at um, some place called the Crystal Palace. It could seat 20,000. 23 people, 23,000 people were there to hear him. No mic. So earlier that day, it said, Spurgeon went into the building. You can imagine how quiet it is, right? And he wants to test out the acoustics to hear how his voice is going to carry. And so the building is very quiet. He doesn't know that there's a worker way up somewhere doing something in the seats, working. 
And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And later he finds out that this workman just all of a sudden hears this truth. He goes home, he repents, he believes, <laughs> becomes a believer, comes back and tells Spurgeon. Um, so Charles Spurgeon, he would, as he would prepare for sermons, he would think through what he was going to speak on. He would write out lots of notes, but all he would carry to the pulpit was an outlined sketch of his sermon. Um, I have one here. <clears throat> page. This is a book I got for Christmas. It's a Charles Spurgeon study Bible. I didn't really need it, but it's fun. The most fun part to me is um, it has these snippets in it of the outlines that he would carry to the pulpit. I'll have to find it later and pass it around. I thought I had it marked. Um, and so he would just speak from these, from this simple outline. But there would be people in the audience who were stenographers, and they would, they would write down everything that he was saying. Um, and then what would happen is the next morning, Monday morning, first thing is um, this transcript from his sermon would be given back to Spurgeon, and he would revise it and get it ready for printing. He would always have it, it would always need to be the very same length of space because he, um, he would get these ready to be sold in what's called these penny pulpits. These were popular in the day. You could buy sermons for one penny. And so they would be printed as penny pulpits to be sold, and they were also um, put in newspapers around the world to be published that way. But they always had to be eight pages in length, the same length. And so the sermon that you have on your um, table that you're going to get to go home and read it's eight pages. They're always eight pages. And so what he would have to do Monday morning is figure out the typos, get the wording right, and then also get it the right length. So if his sermon was a little bit too short, he would have to add some. If it was too long, he would have to take away some to make it um, fit. Sometimes it would go back and forth like three times to the revisionist on Monday morning before it was just, just like he wanted. Um, these sermons were circulated around the world, and they still remain one of the all-time best-selling um, series of writing published in history. About 20,000 copies a week were sold. And Spurgeon would take this money and he would use it to fund two things, two um, organizations in particular that he started. So Spurgeon didn't actually, it sounds like he didn't take a stipend from the church. He didn't like have a salary from the church. He just would use the income from these sermons that he sold. And then he personally funded this pastor's college that he started up in 1866. Um, he wanted men to be able to learn to preach who um, often in his day you had to have a lot of money if you were going to get theological training and you had to be pretty well educated in order to get theological training. But um, Spurgeon had the goal that even if people couldn't read and didn't have any money, they could still get trained. And so they could come to Spurgeon's pastor's college if they could pay, they paid. If they couldn't pay, they didn't have to. They didn't even have to know how to read. But his goal was to train people to preach efficiently and to get at the hearts of the masses. Um, 863 people total were trained at his um, pastor's college. He started with just one student who met in his own home and lived with him. This was before he was married. That was his first student. Once he got married, this student went on to live with someone else. And as more students came, they built a dorm. And this pastor's college started. That was one big thing that he funded. Another was an orphanage he started. It was called, um, what was it called? Stockwell Orphanage. This was right about the time when uh, 
George Mueller started his orphanage too. This is in London when there were just such a problem with orphans on the street and um, children in trouble. And so those were, that's what he did with his um, money. I was going to read um, something about the benefit of these printed sermons. In a lot of what I read, it talks about the effects of these sermons that they had on readers on so many, in so many countries on different continents. But I love this one. I'm in the wrong book. Page. Okay. So this is um, Spurgeon's in a sermon talking, and he's talking about what happened after one of his services. He writes, at the close of one of our services, a poor woman, accompanied by two of her neighbors, came to me in my vestry in deep distress. Her husband had fled the country, and in her sorrow, she had gone to the house of God, and something I said in the sermon made her think that I was personally familiar with her case. Of course, I really had known nothing about her. I had made use of a general illustration, which just fitted her particular case. She told me her story, and a very sad one it was. I said, there's nothing we can do but kneel down and cry to the Lord for the immediate conversion of your husband. We knelt down, and I prayed that the Lord would touch the heart of the deserter, convert his soul, and bring him back to his home. When we rose from our knees, I said to the poor woman, don't fret about the matter. I feel sure your husband will come home, and that he will yet be connected with our church. She went away, and I forgot all about her. Some months afterwards, she reappeared with her neighbors and a man whom she introduced to me as her husband. He had indeed come back, and he had returned a converted man. On making inquiry and comparing notes, we found that the day on which we'd prayed for his conversion, he, being at that time on board a ship, far away at sea, stumbled most unexpectedly upon a stray copy of one of my sermons. He read it. The truth went to his heart. He repented and sought the Lord, and as soon as possible, he came back to his wife and to his daily calling. He was admitted as a member of the tabernacle, and his wife um, was also received into fellowship with us. The woman does not doubt the power of prayer. So that's just one example of the, the influence of his printed sermons. So he obviously influenced his own congregation and those who heard him, but the printed sermons, they influence me today, right? So it's huge. Um, it wasn't always easy for him to keep up with this um, process. You can imagine how tired he would be on a Sunday night and need to rest Monday morning instead of waking up and doing this, this tedious work of getting the sermon um, ready for printing. his wife is writing again she says this was always a labor of love yet it was a labor and it's not surprising that during a very severe illness when his friends induced him to see an eminent physician the doctor urged and almost ordered him to abandon this heavy task so soon after the great strain of the Sabbath services but the pastor knew that to delay the publication even for a week would materially affect the circulation. He also said that if he was to continue his gifts to the Lord's cause on the scale to which he'd been accustomed, he must keep all his literary work up to the highest mark, and he could not bear the thought of lessening the help that he saw to be required in so many different directions. He used also playfully to say that the earth itself would cease to revolve if the sermon was not published every Thursday morning. So he would prepare it Monday morning, but it would come out Thursday morning. Um, I think it's pretty remarkable that at the place of his birth, um, there's a plaque, and it says, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Baptist preacher, 
and philanthropist. So I think we all know him as a Baptist preacher, um, but it says and philanthropist because he actually, he gave so much money away. That's one thing that his son makes note of in that special chapter that I said that I love. He writes... Um, he writes of his dad, his benevolence was one of the best and brightest traits of his character. There are secrets concerning his generous gifts and the self-sacrifice they often entail, which will never be revealed on earth. So he was supporting these ministries all out of his own pocket from the sale of these sermons, but um, one trouble came when um, a lot of the sermon sales were in America, and during the Civil War, Spurgeon spoke out a lot against slavery, and his sermon sales stopped in all the South because they you now hated Spurgeon because he was so vehement against slavery. And so then he was really pinched to have the money to pay for these um, organizations. And so at one point he was considering selling his horse and carriage just to have enough to support the pastor's college. And then someone got wind of it and they were like, no, 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 this isn't gonna work. And so um, from that point on, other people started um, donating lots of money too to help um, in these, but it started out just, just, just Spurgeon. In total, 3,563 sermons of his are in print, and they've sold 56 million copies. That was in his lifetime alone, 56 million copies were sold. So, um, which book is it? This one I had held up before. It's called the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. This is in 62 volumes. Um, it says they're equivalent in size to the 27 volumes of the ninth edition of Encyclopedia Britannica, and they stand as the largest set of books by a single author in the history of Christianity. All of these are online. You don't have to have all 62 volumes like I do. You can go to spurgeongems.org, and you can read them all. You can search by um, Bible reference if you want a certain... Um, you know, I want to read about Isaiah 40, say. You can see if Spurgeon wrote a sermon about that, or you can just scroll down and read the sermon titles and pick one. I'd say they're all good. That could keep you busy for a long time. I realize that if I read a Spurgeon sermon a week, which I, I do every weekend, I treat myself to a Spurgeon sermon, and that is such a treat, and I sit down and I read one, and at that rate, it's going to take me like 70 years to get through it. Um, because even after Spurgeon died, they kept publishing his sermons. He only lived to be 58, but they kept publishing them because he not only had Sunday morning sermons, but he also had all these Sunday night and Thursday night sermons, which a lot of them are also um, in this book. So you might think, okay, preaching like this, he was just a sermon machine. Uh, he could just, he, he could just like write a sermon and didn't maybe have his heart in it, but he was never um, just a sermon machine. He writes... He writes about the personal blessing he got from preparing his sermons. I thought about this Sunday morning when Jeff was preaching from Jude, and he talked about how we're supposed to keep ourselves in the love of Christ, and one thing we can do um, is build ourselves up in our most holy faith, and it just sounds like when I read this that that's what Spurgeon did week after week. He was just building himself up in his, in his faith as he prepared sermons. It, this writer writes, all the time he was preaching, whether to young or old, he was ever ministering to himself. I'm preaching to, to myself, perhaps, a great deal more than to you. 
he writes, if nobody else gets blessed by them, these precious things of Christ, I do. And I go home and praise the Lord for it. My daily fear is that I should be a handler of texts for you and a preacher of good things for others and yet remain unprofited in my own heart. Um, and then it says, not only did the actual preaching bless his own soul, but the preparation of his sermons too. He writes, though it may be true that the professional familiarity with sacred things is apt to breed a lack of personal enjoyment in them, I don't find it so. I think this can happen with a lot of preachers where you just are like, blah, 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 I've read this before, and it's old stuff. Never happened with Spurgeon. He writes, to me, it is a great blessing to have to prepare for preaching. Often the best means of grace to my own soul are the groaning, the pleading, the meditation, and the communion needed for the selection of the right subject upon which to feed your souls. And he likened the personal blessing of preparation um, to a child at the seashore. He says, I felt that when I was coming up to preach tonight in a sermon, I'd been like a little child to the sea, and I'd stooped to the wave and filled my palm as well as I could with the sparkling water, but as I've been coming to bring it to you, it has nearly all trickled away from not able to hold it by reason of my leaking hands. So we had this feeling of, I, I gathered so much as I prepared, and I could only just bring to you the bits, and yet the bits were amazing, right? And, it, and so many people um, came to the Lord. One of his methods of preaching that, um, that just drew so many people was just plain speech. A lot of preachers in his days, they had fancy words and fancy way of speaking because they'd all been theologically trained and they knew how it was supposed to be done. We know Spurgeon wasn't trained and he wanted to appeal to the masses and he just used um, ordinary speech. To us, that sounds normal, but in his day, this was just radical Spurgeon writes, oh, that, that all would tell the gospel out in plain words. I long that all may understand what I have to say. I would be more simple if I knew how. The way of salvation is far too important a matter to be the theme of oratorical displays. Um, so his preaching was marked with plain speech and also marked with deep humility um, and dependence on the Holy Spirit. He writes, unless the Holy Ghost blesses the word, we who preach the gospel are of all men most miserable for we have attempted a task that is impossible. We have entered upon a sphere where nothing but the supernatural will can ever avail. If the Holy Spirit does not renew the hearts of our hearers, we cannot do it. If he does not send the truth home into, the, into souls, we may as well speak into the ear of a corpse. Um, one time his grandfather, who also had been a preacher, gave him some, a bit of advice, and he followed it a lot, and he writes about it. Um, he wrote... I always obey this advice given by my grandfather. He says, I study my sermon as much as if the work of preaching depended entirely upon myself and I go into the pulpit relying upon the Spirit of God, knowing that it does not depend upon myself, but upon him. And so that's how he preached, depending on the Spirit, um, with plain speech. But he also preached with a lot of anxiety, which um, in a way might seem surprising because he preached to so many. And yet it says, Spurgeon suffered mentally, physically, and nervously before each service. He once told his congregation, you will scarcely believe it, but in my vestry behind that door before I come across the con before I address the congregation in this tabernacle, I tremble like an aspen leaf, and often in coming together to this pulpit, I have felt my knees knock together. More often than not, he was violently sick in the vestry before the service, and like the Apostle Paul, entered the sanctuary in fear and trembling. Back home at night, it was just the same. I would say to myself, he writes, you did not speak lovingly enough. You were not tender enough. You were not earnest enough. And when I went to bed, I would lie and toss about. So it sounds like he also had what some preachers called post-preaching depression, where he would just be regretting um, the sermons that he wrote. 
he says especially when he would try to preach on the love of Christ um, because it was such a vast topic and he just couldn't get words for it. He says he would go home from the platform utterly ashamed of my poor, feeble um, words and the tongue which uttered them. So he would just go home ashamed because he, of what he said because the love of Christ is so beautiful. Um, someone wants to ask him, what's the secret to your success? Because he was so successful. And he said, my people pray for me. So Thursday nights, um, service started at 7, but at 6, it would be opened up to have his congregation come and pray with him for his preaching. And then Sunday mornings, too, he would pray with the elders and deacons, and there were all kinds of prayer meetings during the week. But he wrote um, a letter to his son once when he was about 12 at school, just giving an insight into how important preaching was. And we're about to have a break. Um, Dear boy, he writes, because his son had written to him, one of my sweetest joys is to hear that a spirit of prayer is at your school and that you participate in it. To know that you love the Lord and you are mighty in prayer would be my crowning joy. The hope that you do so already is a happy one to me. I should like you to preach, but it is best that you pray. Many a preacher has proved a castaway, but never one who has truly learned to pray. Um, Finally, what really marked his um, preaching was just a love for souls, a passion for souls. We saw that, remember, when I was reading about his first convert and how desperate he was, for one. He writes, I remember when I've preached at different times in the country and sometimes here that my whole soul has agonized over men. Every nerve of my body has been strained and I could have wept my very being out of my eyes and carried my whole frame away in a flood of tears if I could but win souls. That was his passion. And you'll see, in, um, he followed this pattern in every single sermon because he knew that he would have a mixture of believers and unbelievers in his crowd. Every single sermon finishes with a message um, to unbelievers. It's the pattern he did. He, he writes, I've preached this gospel for many years and I do not think I've ever finished a sermon except in one way, by, trusting, by trying to explain what is meant by the simple trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He did this because from such a large membership, he had to conduct a large number of funerals. And so he became aware at all times that he was racing against time. He writes, how often do I stand at the grave's mouth till sometimes when week after week and twice each week I stand there, I fancy myself talking to dying men and not to living men at all. He felt such an urgency. And so even in this sermon I passed out to you, one thing you can do when you go home is look at the back and find the bit where he, he reaches out to unbelievers. Um, he'll write... At the very end, the whole thing is to believers until the end. And he says, if this one prayer condemns you, how will you bear the majesty, blah, blah, blah. He says, um, Jesus died for sinners. He came to save the ungodly. Trust him, trust him, trust him, trust him. And from this day you shall begin to live. Oh, may the Spirit of God help you to trust him. And then, so this was just every single sermon. You could pick up one, I'd say, and you could find this. Um, when he preached on Sunday evening, his sermons were often of a more evangelistic nature because he knew that he would get more unbelievers and they would be crowding outside trying to find room. And so once a quarter, he would actually say to his congregation in the morning, none of you come tonight, none of you come. And they would open up the door and let everybody else come. And he would just give this pure evangelistic message. And his church would obey him. He'd look out and he wouldn't recognize anyone. And the seats would just fill up with the people who normally um, couldn't get room. So now we get to take a break. Okay. You know how I said that one of my favorite chapters 
I have three favorite parts of what I've studied um, on his life. One was what I was telling you about his childhood and just the amazing little boy that he was and the reading that he did. That, that his conversion part was one of my favorite chapters. Then the chapter where his son talks about his dad, I love that, but I think my favorite is what I'm about to share with you. His wife writes about a typical week in the life of Spurgeon. Now, mind you, this is just a typical week because I'll tell you later, hopefully we'll have time to talk about the, um, his trials. He had lots of illness and lots of depression, so that would have taken away from a typical week. But this is a typical week of Spurgeon. And so she starts talking about Saturdays. Keep in mind, he's going to be preaching twice on Sunday. Here's what he does on Saturday afternoons. He has friends over um, to visit. Every Saturday afternoon, they come for tea, which is supper, um, and then they stay for devotions after supper, and then at six o'clock on Saturday evening, he'll say, now dear friends, I must bid you goodbye and turn you out of the study. You know what a number of chickens I have to scratch for, and I want to give them a good meal tomorrow. So with a hearty God bless you, he shook hands. Okay, this is, this is after supper on Saturday, and then... He goes to start to prepare for Sunday. When do you think Pastor Jeff starts to prepare for Sunday? Probably on Tuesday, right? I think he takes Monday off. So Spurgeon starts Saturday night to prepare for Sunday morning. His His wife is writing this, so she would know, right? She says, No human ear ever heard the mighty pleadings with God for himself and his people, which rose from his study on those solemn evenings. She writes, his grandest and most fruitful sermons were those which cost him the most soul travail and spiritual anguish, not in their preparation or arrangement, but in his own overwhelming sense of accountability to God for the souls to whom he had to preach the gospel of salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. Though he had the gift of utterance above many, preaching was to him no light or trifling task. His whole heart was absorbed in it. All his spiritual force was engaged in it. All this intellectual power with which God had so richly endowed him was pressed into this glorious service and then laid humbly and thankfully at the feet of his Lord and Savior to be used and blessed by him according to his gracious will and purpose. Listen to this. Sometimes, she would write, but not often, he would leave the study for a few moments and seek me out, find me, and say with a troubled tone in his voice, Wifey, what shall I do? God has not given me my text yet. I would comfort him as well as I could, and after a little talk, he would return to his work and wait and watch for the word to be given. It was to me a cause for peculiar thankfulness when I was able to suggest to him a passage from which he could preach. And afterwards, in referring to the sermon, he seemed so pleased to say, you gave me that text. I couldn't find it here, but I read it once that one Saturday night, he didn't know what to preach on Sunday morning. And so he just went to bed. He didn't know what to do. He's asleep, and Susanna wakes up and hears him preaching in his sleep. And so she starts taking notes on what he said. (laughs) So the next morning he wakes up and he's like, what am I going to do? I still don't know what to preach. And she goes, here's your sermon. (laughs) Yeah, she was a huge support in his ministry, right? Okay, that Saturday night, Sunday morning, he would go to church early because he had that prayer meeting and he had to choose the hymns to be sung. He would preach. Sunday, then he would have lunch. Um, it talks about Sunday, three, sixteen, seventeen. Let me find it. Um, he would have to visit with some people. 
Sometimes there was a sick member he felt he had to go visit after lunch. And then he would rest. Then about four o'clock, he would begin preparing for his evening discourse. (laughs) And then she talks about how it was often a bit shorter and more evangelistic in nature. He would preach and then meet with people. But you can see why says, how often on Lord's Day evenings do we feel as if our life were completely washed out of us? After pouring out our souls over our congregations, we feel like empty earthen pitchers, which a child might break. He goes to bed Sunday night like that. Then he wakes up Monday morning, and what does he do first? He revises his sermons, ready for print. And then do you know what he does? He meets with people called inquirers. So it was never Spurgeon's practice to give an altar call which you've heard a lot of Baptists would do at the end of a sermon. Instead, he would always extend an invitation that if anyone was moved to follow Christ, they could meet with him on Monday after he did his sermon uh, review, right? It says, without fail, there was always someone at his door the next day. Um, He was always ready to meet with him. So we're still in his week, right? Now we're on Monday. We've talked about Sunday, now we're on Monday. I want to just read to you about one of these visits with inquirers. I would have been an inquirer, right? I think I'd go talk to him even if I was already a believer, just because I'd want to get to talk to him, right? Am I the wrong volume? Just a minute, I want to find this. 244. Oh, I'm 100 pages off. I get numbers mixed up these days. Okay, so this is Monday morning. He's meeting with someone. A lady came to me after a service in the tabernacle and asked me to pray for her. She had been before to speak to me about her soul, and so I said to her on the second occasion, I told you very plainly the way of salvation, namely, that you are to trust yourself in Christ's hands, relying on his atoning sacrifice. Have you done that? She answered, no. And then she asked me whether I would pray for her. I said, no, certainly I will not. She looked at me with astonishment and asked again, will you not pray for me? No, I replied, I have nothing for which to pray for you. I've set the way of salvation before you so simply that if you will not walk in it, you will be lost. But if you trust Christ now, you will be saved. I have nothing further to say to you, but in God's name, to set before you life and death. Still she pleaded, do pray for me. No, I answered, Would you have me ask God to shape his gospel so as to let you in as an exception? I do not see why he should. His plan of salvation is the only one that has ever been or ever will be of any avail. And if you do not trust it, I'm not going to ask God for anything, for I do not see what else is wanting from him. I put this question plainly to you. Will you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I certainly was somewhat surprised when the sister said very deliberately, If that be so, then that salvation will come to me by believing... I do believe what the scripture says concerning Christ. And moreover, I feel that I can trust myself with him because he is God and he has offered a sufficient sacrifice for my sins. And I do trust myself to him just now. And I feel such a strange peace stealing over me at this moment. I have trusted him and I'm certain that I'm saved. And in an instant she said to me, good evening, sir. There are other people waiting to see you. And away she went like the common sense woman that she was. So, um, he would meet with inquirers. He also, this would carry over into Tuesdays because he had so many people to meet with. But you know how um, here at church, if someone needs counseling, they don't go to Pastor Jeff, right? They would go to vicarthaliacare.northview.care.org or something. Not Spurgeon. He would also meet with people who needed counseling. Um, 
And this was kind of hard on him. This is what he writes. He says, when I see troubled people, I enter into one sorrowful case after another till I am more sad than any of them. I try as far as I can to have fellowship with a case of each one in order to be able to speak a word of comfort to him. And I can say from personal experience that I know of nothing that wears the soul down so fast as the outflow of sincere sympathy with the sorrowing, desponding, depressed ones. I have sometimes been the means in God's hand of helping a man who suffered with a desponding spirit. But the help I have rendered has cost me dearly. Hours after, I have been myself depressed and I have felt an inability to shake it off. That's Tuesdays. Wednesdays, he would try to take a midweek Sabbath, which his wife says he sometimes took, but often he didn't because he got so many invitations. Sometimes he was preaching 10 times a week because people were asking him and he really hated saying no. Thursdays, do you know what the poor man had to do? He had to answer letters. Um, he didn't like this. <laughs> you, you know, preachers now have emails to answer, and I guess if you had lots, right, you would have your secretary maybe weed through them. And if you had the same thing to say to a lot of people, you could at least copy and paste a little bit. You can't do that with letter writing. Um, that's what he did on Thursdays, and he, he actually didn't like it. He writes, his wife says, he said, I am only a poor clerk. That's what I feel like, driving my pen hour after hour. Here's another whole morning gone and nothing but letters, letters, letters. And she writes, when I reminded him of the joy and comfort he was ministering to many troubled hearts by that very drudgery, he agreed that it was work for the Lord as truly as preaching in which he's so much more delighted. Um, that's what he did Thursday mornings, and then he had lunch, and do you remember what he did Thursday evening? He preached again. So Thursday afternoon after lunch, he would begin to prepare for his evening sermon, but he writes um, that often the subject had been simmering in his mind all morning when he was writing letters. Um, and often on Thursday nights, he would get people from lots of different denominations who would come, who would come, who would visit their own church on Sunday mornings and come to him on Thursday nights. And then came Friday. Friday was a special day for him. He would um, go to the, you know how he had a college for pastors? That would be his day to teach there. And um, there's a testimony from the, it says that both students and ministers often declared there at the college, not even um, in Spurgeon's most brilliant pulpit utterances did he excel or even equal what it was their delight to hear from his lips in these never-to-be-forgotten days. From 3 to 5 o'clock in the afternoon, there was a continual stream of wit and wisdom, counsel and warning, exhortation and doctrine, all converging to the one end of helping the men before him to become good ministers of Christ. So that's what he did. Friday morning, he would prepare for his Friday afternoon teaching at the college. Um, but this weighed on him, right? This kind of schedule. He suffered from stress and guilt. He would be, feel guilty for feeling so stressed, and that's not good. He writes... Um, he says, no one living knows the toil and care I have to bear. I have to look after the orphanage, have to char the charge of a church with 4,000 members. Sometimes there are marriages and burials to be undertaken. There's the weekly sermon to be revised. There's the sword and the trowel to be edited. I haven't even said he also ran a magazine, and he, um, he was the editor of the sword and the trowel. And besides all that, hundreds of letters weekly to be answered. This, however, is only half my duty for there are innumerable churches established by friends with the affairs of which I'm closely connected 
to say nothing of the cases of difficulty which are constantly being referred to me, all those cases of counseling. And then his wife writes a little bit about that too. She says, add all to this the constant interruptions from callers and the many minor worries to which every public man is subject. And readers may well wonder when Spurgeon could find time for reading and study. Remember, he read six books a week and do all the work that he constantly accomplished. If they had known how much he was continually doing, they might have marveled even more than, he, than, than they did. Surely there has never been a busier life than his. Not an atom more of sacred service could have been crowded into it. I believe it, right? Um, but he would be encouraged by things like this. He wrote, this is in, in a sermon. He writes, when our hearts grow faint, I actually have this on the board so y'all can read it, and our zeal wavers for the task of preaching he's called us to. Meditate with deep solemnity upon the fate of the lost sinner. Shun all views of future punishment which would make it appear less terrible. And so take off the edge of your anxiety to save immortal souls from the quenchless flame. Think much also of the bliss of the sinner saved. There will be no fear of your being lethargic if you are continually familiar with eternal realities. Also, um, just speaking a little bit about his crazy schedule. He writes, if by excessive labor we die before reaching the average age of man, and he died at 58, right? That's below average. If we die worn out in the master's service, then glory be to God. We shall have so much less of earth and so much more of heaven. That's it. He didn't know he was good. That's his life, right? And then he writes, this is in Lectures to My Students. It's a fun book because these are lectures, some of those lectures that he gave on Friday afternoons. He writes, it is our duty, meaning ours as pastors, and privilege to exhaust our lives for Jesus. We are not to be living specimens of men in fine preservation, but living sacrifices whose lot it is to be consumed. So at Spurgeon's 50th birthday, there was a list of 66 organizations read that he had either founded or he was involved in, um, including the pastor's college and the orphanage that you know about. Um, He was friends with Hudson Taylor, who started China Inland um, Mission. And he would often, um, he supported that work financially, and he would help find candidates and interview candidates to serve with Hudson Taylor. And who's heard of the wordless book? Uh, or of those little bracelets that have the, the, my heart at black, the black bead for sin, red bead for the blood of Jesus, and a white bead? That came from Spurgeon, too. I didn't know that until studying. Um, it's a teaching tool that Spurgeon introduced in a sermon in 1866 based on Psalm 51.7, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. This book is used all around the world um, to teach the gospel because you don't even have to be able to read to go through the wordless book. And I haven't even started on the books that he wrote. He wrote 135 books in his lifetime, including the 60, not to mention these 62 volumes. Um, So you wonder when he had time. Well, sometimes he would go to the coast of France to rest and write books. And sometimes when he was sick, he would just write books. This treasury of David, if I had to pick something favorite and you you were gonna burn all my Spurgeon and let me keep one thing, I think it would be treasury of David. So this is a three volume commentary on the Psalms. He worked 16 years on this. To me, this is remarkable because he didn't take 16 years to do anything. Like he prepared Sunday night sermon, I mean, Sunday morning sermon, Saturday night, right? Everything was quick, but not this. He labored 16 years because he wanted to do a really good job, and he didn't have a lot of time for this. Um, But one thing I love in the preface, this shows to me his, you know, we know he loved the lost. He also loved the church, and he wanted to share good things with the church. 
Um, so Spurgeon writes, the delightful study of the Psalms has yielded me boundless profit and ever-growing pleasure. Common gratitude constrains me to communicate to others a portion of the benefit with a prayer that it may induce them to search further for themselves. He wrote this because he loved the church. I feel like he loved me, right, enough to say, I'm going to give this as a gift. To over, out, of the, out of his delight of the Psalms, he wanted to give it. And so verse by verse of 150 Psalms, are, um, he goes through, and it's wonderful. But I won't, anyway. He wrote all kinds of books. He, there's a, a devotional book. This is a great one to start with, too, Morning and Evening. I think you can read this online, and you don't even need the book. This is a, just a short Spurgeon Morning and Evening um, bit you could read. He wrote books about Pilgrim's Progress. He did, anyway, I'm not going to go over all the books. There's lots. Um, what's that? You could go to SpurgeonGems.org, and you know how all the sermons are listed, and you can look, and I'm sure he's, oh, yes. Now, he does treat Song of Solomon differently than pastors would today. I think pastors today say, okay, this is actually talking about married love. Spurgeon is of the day when, no, 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 no. This is all about the love between Christ and the church, and so it gets all flowery and a little bit weird, but... (laughs) I don't, I don't read much of his stuff on Solomon. Um, okay, I'm going to read you. So, this kind of wraps up his, uh, his crazy schedule and his reason for it. So Spurgeon writes, people said to me years ago, you will break your constitution down with preaching 10 times a week and the like. Well, if I have done so, I'm glad of it. I would do the same again. If I had 50 constitutions, I would rejoice to break them down in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. You young men that are strong, overcome the wicked one and fight for the Lord while you can. You will never regret having done all that lies in you for the blessed Lord and Master. Crowd as much as you can into every day and postpone no work until tomorrow. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Who remembers Sarah's talk on Elizabeth Elliot? Y'all remember? What was the thing, four words that Elizabeth would use sort of as her motto of what you should do? Do the next thing, right? I think that his would be do the next thing with all your might, right? Four more words, just crazy with all your might. Um, there's a place for boundaries, and I don't know that Spurgeon got that at all. Like he was willing to be broken down, and he died for it. Um, and I think sometimes maybe we're a little too boundaries, like squished, and there's probably a happy balance between us and Spurgeon, right? So we could live longer than 58 but maybe get a little bit more done in our lives than we are getting done. Um, so now I'm going to shift and talk a little bit about some of his trials um, and hardships because he had a lot. Um, he writes, I'm afraid that all the grace that I have got out of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good that I've received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It's the best book in a minister's life. And then, 
looks like there's something on page 178 in here about that. No, it can't be because there are not 178 pages. <laughs> okay, we're going to skip that. So one, one of the afflictions that he had was criticism, and he got a lot of it. You know how he had that plain speech that drew the crowds? Uh, the, the press hated it, and other preachers hated it. Other preachers called him, called him a buffoon. Um, and the press would have scathing articles about him from the get-go. Here's one um, article in the Bristol Advertiser. It says, solemnly do we express our regret that insolence so unblushing, intellect so feeble, flippancy so ostentatious, and manners so rude should in the name of religion and in connection with the church receive the acknowledgement of even a momentary popularity. Um, they go on to write, Will his popularity last? We more than doubt it. It stands on no firm basis. Thousands who go now to hear Spurgeon only go through curiosity. Men are very much like sheep. One goes through a hedge, then another and another. Um, this has been a good deal with the case of Mr. Spurgeon's congregation, but the current will soon turn and leave him. <laughs> they were wrong, right? Um, this was really hard on Susanna and Charles both. Susanna writes, my heart, she says, my heart alternately sorrowed over um, over these, and I was inflamed with indignation. For a time, um, sometimes she would hide, like she would hide the morning paper from him because she didn't want him to see it. And then finally, what she did that she felt helped was she got printed up Matthew five eleven to twelve, and she put it right there um, by their table. This is blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted the prof they the prophets before you. And it was, she says it was hung up in her own room and was read over by the dear preacher every morning, fulfilling its purpose most blessedly for its strengthening his heart and enabled him to buckle on the invisible armor whereby he could calmly walk among men unruffled by their calumnies and concerned only for their best and highest interest. Um, and yet it still hurt. It still really affected him. He wrote, Down on my knees I've often fallen with hot sweat rising from my brow, under sun, fresh slander poured upon me. In an agony of grief, my heart has been well nigh broken. Even his fellow ministers called him a pulpit buffoon. Um, he, um, he was involved in a controversy, uh, speaking of conflict, later in life. He was part of the Baptist Union. And um, Charles Darwin was in this day in his thought. And it was causing some real liberal thoughts to come to filter through and it affected the church. And um, in particular, the Baptist Union was um, questioning biblical inspiration, the nature of atonement, and the deity of Christ. And so Charles Spurgeon said, we've got to pull away from this. And so he, he broke off from the Baptist Union and this caused so much conflict and tension between his friends and even students who'd gone through his pastor's college. And before he broke away, he said, this is, gonna, this is gonna kill me, this is gonna do me in, and it did. It was so hard on him, this last great conflict, and yet he felt like he had to do it. He couldn't, he, these issues were too important for him, him to let it go. Um, another great uh, trial that he had happened, remember when they were building the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and it was gonna seat 5,000, and his other church only seated 1,200, so often they would rent out um, places, and one of the places they rented one night was the Surrey Garden Music Hall, and um, let me find how many people were there. 
so 12,000 people were there in the hall, and there were thousands outside. And some troublemaker up at top, while he was preaching, started calling fire, and there was no fire. And this just caused a crazy stampede chaos. And Spurgeon was calling down from the pulpit, trying to calm people down, saying, no, this, this, no, 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 everything's fine. But seven people were killed in that incident um, being trampled, and many people um, were injured, and this, this just affected, this was the first time after this then that he would have fallen into severe um, depression. His, his wife describes him when he came home that night. She says, when my beloved was brought home, he looked a wreck of his former self. An hour's agony of mind had changed his whole appearance and bearing. The night had ensued was one of weeping and wailing and indescribable sorrow. He refused to be comforted. I thought the morning would never break, and when it did come, it brought no relief. The Lord has mercifully blotted out from my mind most of the details of the time of grief which followed when my beloved's anguish, anguish was so deep and violent that reason seemed to totter on her throne, and we sometimes feared that he would never preach again. And he didn't preach for a while, and he could hardly function. He was so depressed. Um, and yet, in the end, it was God's word that, that revived him. She, she writes, she says, they were out on a walk together. As usual, he was restless and anguished. She says, I was sorrowful and amazed, wondering what the end of these things would be. When he looked up, and he said, with a sweet light in his eyes, and it had grievously been absent for so long. He said, dearest, how foolish I have been. Why, what does it matter what becomes of me if the Lord shall be but glorified? And he repeated Philippians 2, 9 to 11, where we hear that God has highly exalted Jesus and given him the name above every name. Spurgeon writes, if Christ is exalted, and then his face glowed with holy fervor, let him do as, as he pleases with me. My one prayer shall be that I may die to self and live holy for him and for his honor. Oh, wifey, I see it all now. Praise the Lord with me. Um, she writes, though, that he still carried the scars of that conflict to his dying day. And never afterward had he the physical vigor and strength which he possessed before that fiery trail, trial. So that's what his first bout of depression. And then after that, he would have recurring bouts of depression. And his health began to fail after that time. One really cool thing, I think, for me personally, is this weekend I was reading my Spurgeon sermon for the week, and mention was made of um, the, the, the disaster at the music hall, and what's neat is that if I hadn't been studying for this, I would have read, read the sermon and met her, read it through and thought, I don't know what he's talking about historically, and skipped it, but I knew what he was talking about, because, so I'm just going to read it. It's really neat. This sermon is called Ebenezer, and it was his 500th sermon preached, and so it was a time for him to look back on the Lord's faithfulness to us and to the congregation. So he's going through their history, and then he goes, we have had our sorrows as a church. Shall I remind you of our black and dark day? Like everybody knows what he's talking about, right? I mean, in his church, they would have known. Never erased from our memory can be the time of our affliction and trial. Death came into our windows and dismay into our hearts. Did not all men speak ill of us? Who would give us a good word? Ah, God, you know how great have been the results which flowed from that terrible calamity, but from our souls the memory never can be taken, not even in heaven itself. And the recollection of that night of confusion and those long weeks of slander and abuse, let us roll a great stone before the Lord and let us write down, hitherto the Lord has helped us. Little did the devil gain by that master stroke. Small was the triumph which he earned by that piece of malice. Greater multitudes than ever flocked to listen to the word, 
and some here who otherwise might never have attended the preaching of the gospel remain as living monuments of God's power to save. Of all evil things out of which good has arisen, we can always point to the Surrey Hall catastrophe as one of the greatest goods which ever befell this neighborhood, notwithstanding the sorrow which it brought. This one fact is but a sample of others, for it is the Lord's rule to bring good out of evil and so to prove his wisdom and to magnify his grace. Um, so as I mentioned, he then struggled a lot with depression and illness. But um, the illness he had was something called gout, which I think is still, people can have it today. It's terribly painful, and he also had kidney disease. <clears throat> but he writes, um, he writes about how important it is that a minister actually knows what it is to suffer or else how could he actually minister to a suffering body he says it is of necessity that we are sometimes in heaviness good men are promised tribulation in this world and ministers may expect a larger share than others that they may learn sympathy with the Lord's suffering people and so may be fitting shepherds of an ailing flock men of marble might have been fashioned but their impassive natures would have been a sarcasm upon our feebleness and a mockery of our wants Men and men subject to human passions, the all-wise God has chosen to be his vessels of grace. Hence these tears, hence these perplexities and castings down. Moreover, most of us are in some way or another unsound physically. Here and there we meet an old man who can't remember that he ever was laid aside for a day. But the great mass of us labor under some form or another of infirmity, either in body or in mind. Um, and he, 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 he was able to see that connection between, um, oh, it's the wrong book, that's why. Okay, hang on. Where is it? Oh, it's right here. Okay. He was able to see that connection between physical suffering and mental suffering. This is turning to his mental suffering. His several periods of doubt and despondency, he knew that mental and physical well-being were interdependent. Spurgeon writes, I find that when I'm in good physical health, I'm not often tempted of Satan to despondency or doubt. But whenever I get depressed in spirit or the liver is out of order or the head aches, then comes the hissing serpent. God is forsaking you. You are no child of God. You are unfaithful to your master. You have no part in the blood of the sprinkling and such the like. I bless the Lord that he has not taken a notice of what I have said and thought when I've been greatly depressed and distracted by pain. Our Lord knows that the spirit is willing even when the flesh is weak and he thinks kindly of us still. If he did mark my foolish despondencies, what could I say but, Lord, have mercy on my foolish child. When your child has a fever, it may be that he is fretful and begins to talk foolishly. So Spurgeon's suffering like this, you can imagine that when people came to him with depression, he was able to really help um, and have mercy. And so I think that in the end, he was thankful. And here, here's what he wrote about that. I often feel very grateful to God that I've undergone fearful depressions of spirits. I know the borders of despair and the horrible brink of that gulf of darkness into which my feet have almost gone. But hundreds of times I've been able to give a helpful grip to brethren and sisters who have come into that same condition, which grip I could never have given if I had not known their deep despondency. So I believe that the darkest and most dreadful experience of a child of God will help him to be a fisher of men if he will but follow Christ. Um, 
And he, he recognized that he, he could have done more for his health. I'm not going to read this, but he, he tells his students about the importance of just how hard it is on a body to be in a dark room over books all day, right? That they need to go out and get fresh air and exercise, things that we hear today, right, that are actually going to help you. He didn't follow this advice himself, but he was able to say to his students, um, he says, let a man be naturally as blithe as a bird. He will hardly be able to bear up year after year against such a suicidal process. Um, he will make his study a prison. Um, he says, a mouthful of sea air or a stiff walk in the wind's face won't give grace to the soul, but it would yield oxygen to the body, which is the next best. So he recognized um, that. He preached his last sermon six months before he died. Um, in those last six months, then he went back to the coast of France because he was so ill. Um, during that time, he was working on an exposition of the Gospel of Matthew. This is a really special book. It was the last one. He never finished it, but he still had, so he wrote part of it, and then he had all these notes, and so his wife and editor helped to finish it up. So um, he was, even, even in his last bits, he was working. I love this. I have something from uh, his last sermon, but I won't read it, but I will read something that he said just a few days before his death. He said to a few friends who were gathered around him, Spurgeon wrote, we would have it so happen that when our life's history is written, whoever reads it will not think of us as self-made men, but as the handiwork of God in whom his grace is magnified. None in us may, none in us may men see the clay. Oh, not in us may men see the clay, but the potter's hand. They said of one, he is a fine preacher, but of another they say, we never notice how he preaches, but we feel that his God is great. We wish our whole life to be a sacrifice, an altar of incense, continually smoking with a sweet perfume unto the Most High. So who can remember what it was that Spurgeon prayed for when he was 15, a new believer? What three things? Do you remember? What's that? Yes, to be kept from his two great enemies, pride and sloth. Did God answer that? Did God keep him from sloth? <laughs> Did God keep him from pride? Yeah. And he said he wanted to have something useful to do in his master's service. Did God answer that? Yeah. I just think God was clearly directing this boy how to pray in such a way that God would answer that in his whole, his whole life long. Um, he prays on his 16th birthday in his journal. He writes, at 16 on his birthday, let me have daily grace, peace and comfort, zeal and love. Give me some work and give me some strength to do it for thy glory. God answered these prayers. Um, I really love it. I want to read to you his son's, you know how I said I love the chapter of his son's testimony? I just, both sons. So his one son, Charles, wrote a lot of this chapter. He went on to be a pastor. His other son, Thomas, took over Metropolitan Tabernacle, his ministry there. So this one writes about his father. If ever a man was sent from God, my father was, a true apostle and faithful ambassador of Jesus Christ. Although my judgment may be deemed very partial, I venture to express the opinion that since the days of Paul, there has not lived a greater or more powerful exponent of the doctrines of grace or more able and successful preacher of the saying, which is worthy of all accept acceptation, that Christ came into the world to save sinners. 
There was no one who could preach like my father, an inexhaustible variety, witty wisdom, vigorous proclamation, loving entreaty, and lucid teaching with a multitude of other qualities. He must, at least in my opinion, be ever regarded as the prince of preachers. So his son's the one who started this term to call him the prince of preachers. From the days when as a little boy I sat behind the platform uh, taking notes in his little notebook, he writes, I've looked upon him as the prime minister of England. There was one trait in his noble and godly character which, among others, always shone with a luster of particularity particularly its own. His humility was of a Christ-like character. Words of eulogy concerning himself were ever painful to him, his motto in this, as in all other matters being, not I, but Christ. Yet from his own child, some word of praise may surely come, and the son would fain render all due honor to the best of fathers. His blameless example, his holy consistency, his genial love, his generous liberality, his wise counsel, and his fearless fidelity to God and his truth are all on par with his fatherliness. And in my heart, as in those with whom he came in contact, these qualities have been enshrined. The matchless grace and goodness manifested in the home found their counterpart in his public career and proved how completely the spirit of the master permeated the whole of his servant. So I just love that, that his son can give the testimony that his, his ministry started at home and that he was faithful at home and that he wasn't one thing out in public and another at home. Um, so we can say that Charles Spurgeon was a remarkable man, right? So we could say, okay, he preached to 10 million people. How in the world? Like, what can I learn from him if I say I want to be like him? Because I don't intend to speak to 10 million people. And yet, I think of some of the things that he's remarkable in. I've got a few of them listed here. And, and these are things I want to be remarkable in, right? He's remarkable in humility. I want to be remarkable in humility. Um, he was remarkable in being a tireless worker. Paul, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 12, he said, I will gladly spend and be spent for the sake of your souls. Wasn't that what Spurgeon did? He was willing to be spent for the sake of souls. Um, and so I'd like to be also a tireless worker. Um, he was remarkable in being a good steward of the gifts given by God. Um, there's a little testimony of a neighbor who lived close to him, and he's just listing the, just the gifts that Spurgeon had. Um, the neighbor writes, Mr. Spurgeon had a marvelous combination of gifts which contributed to his greatness. A voice you could hear with pleasure, it could not help. A, a, verse, a voice that you heard with pleasure and could not help hearing, so he had a booming voice. A mind that absorbed all knowledge. A memory that he treated with confidence that never disappointed him. A great heart, practical common sense, so these were just gifts that God had given him, and he was a faithful steward of those. And so that's something that I want to be, right? A good steward of gifts given. Spurgeon was remarkable in his love for the lost, and he was remarkable in his love for the church. I want to have that. And he was remarkable in ministering in spite of adversity, because a lot of his life was full of adversity. And yet, if you remember, he, now you've heard about his adversity in life, right? And yet, at the end, he would still say he would never go back to those five years of spiritual horrors from 10 to 15 when he was searching for salvation. He still says those are the worst. And he was remarkable in generosity. And um, I certainly want to be. Um, you know, it feels like Spurgeon squeezed 100 years of living into those years. And I look at my own life and the energy that I put forth, and it feels like I'm on the trajectory of squeezing 50 years of life into 100, which is just a little bit flip. And so I, I think there's a place for boundaries, right? But I think that I could um, give a little more, and, it's, and I'm inspired. And so as I read 
um, sermons from Spurgeon, and he says things like, give it all as you serve, right? And I read that, and I'm like, he's not just, or he says, have joy in the midst of trials. It's not just from a throne that he's speaking. He's, he's there giving it all, and he's th- there having the joy in the midst of trials, even when he's um, suffering from depression. And so it's someone that we can listen to because he's just so real.